0: Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he'd answer them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming And of the close of the age. And then Jesus answers, and we're picking up in his answer in verse 36, where he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have... uh, uh, He would uh, not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, you will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and that you've set aside this time in our week where you might address us with your words. We pray that you'd give your spirit to instruct our hearts, give us ears to hear, to understand your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are uh, talking this morning about important Christian doctrine of the second coming. And uh, which is, if you uh, don't know what the second coming is, the gospel tells us that Jesus died on the cross. After three days, he was, his body was risen from the dead, and he spent 40 days showing himself to people that he was still alive and proclaiming about his kingdom. And then after 40 days, he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father. He was given authority over all the nations of the earth. And then, um, at the resurrection, Jesus is going to come back as the judge before whom every man and woman that has ever lived will stand before him and give an account for the life that they've lived in the earth. That's the belief of the, uh, of the second coming. And, you know, let me just say, if you're visiting with us, thinking about the second coming is probably a lot to swallow. You know, you, this one guy is going to judge all the people that have ever lived. I mean, how many billions of people? And he's going to think through their whole life story. I mean, how many sins do we all have? Millions of sins? How is this going to work? Isn't it going to take a long time to do all that? And I have to tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about the details about how you know, the second coming and the final judgment works. But something to be clear about is that this is absolutely something that Jesus believed about himself. And we'll see this over the next few weeks in Jesus' teaching, that he clearly believed himself to be the judge of the whole earth. Which means he's either right We have to take him very seriously that there's a judgment coming. It's a very sober reminder for us. Or, Jesus is insane. Because, you know, you imagine someone who says, you know, just, hey, imagine you met a person who said, you know, at the end of history, I'm going to come with all the angels, and everyone who ever lived is going to have to give an account to me about their life. They owe their life to me. I mean, imagine someone saying that. That is crazy. You would say, this person is either insane, but no one thinks that Jesus was insane. He's one of the most sane, brilliant people who understands, you know, human life, psychology, relationships, culture. He's incredibly insightful. And so there's a part of us that really has to take seriously what he's saying. And, you know, this extraordinary doctrine that Jesus is coming again is not an eccentric part of some kind of fringe theology. You might think, you know, Jesus coming again. You know, I understand there's maybe some fringe Christians who kind of believe that something like that is going to happen. That's absolutely not true. It's one of the most ecumenical uh, doctrines there is in Christianity. And actually, you know, every week as a church, we say together the Apostles' Creed, which is this ancient statement of what do Christians believe. And, you know, every... A branch of the church confesses the Apostles' Creed, and it says very clearly in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who's God's own son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, he buried, he descended into the grave. He, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. From there, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. The second coming is a basic essential part of the gospel and Christian belief is that Jesus is coming again. It's not a fringe crazy idea even though when you think about it it's like wow, it's out there a little bit. So um, it's really important for us to understand. So this morning we're going to look at Jesus' own teaching about the second coming and there are a few important lessons in this passage that I just read to you and this is, this is the three that we're going to look at. Is that the second coming is a surprise. Second, The second coming is not a rapture. Some of you may know that word rapture or familiar with rapture theology. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then third, the second coming is for judgment. So it's a surprise. It's not a rapture, but it is for judgment. That's why Jesus is coming. So three things this morning on the second coming, and, and this is the first one. The second coming is a surprise. And, you know, if you were here with us last week, you'll know that we're picking up in the middle of Jesus' final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has five long discourses that make up the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the final one, this is prophetic statement. And um, this discourse comes as an answer to the, a question, that, two questions actually, that his disciples asked him. And you saw that there in verse 3 that I read. If you look at that again, Jesus had said, Hey, they were walking through the temple, and he says, He looks around, and he says, You see all these stones in the temple, that not one of them is going to re- stay on top of each other, this whole thing's going to be destroyed. And so in verse 3 it says, And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple be? That was the first question. And we answered that last week. Jesus gave details about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans. And then they ask a second question, And what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, and of the close of the age? Now, um, in the case of the destruction of the temple, last week we saw that there were all kinds of details that were leading up to the destruction of the temple. This was going to be a generation after Jesus lives. Jesus says, within a generation, these things are going to happen. You're going to see you know, armies surrounding Jerusalem. There's going to be tribula- tribulation, and kingdom's going to rise up against kingdom. You're going to experience all kinds of persecution, and then, the, and then the destruction of the temple is going to come. And what he says at the end of that, he says, you know, it's kind of like a fig tree. And in, you know, in the spring, you know, when summer's coming and it kind of warms up, you can see that the, the, the branch is becoming tender and there's a leaf that's coming out, and that gives you a sign that the summer is near. And so you can f- see all these things that are going to happen with the, with the fall of Jerusalem coming and the destruction of the temple. But he says the second coming is different. And you see here in verse 36, he says, but concerning, because that word concerning is used in other places in the New Testament... When someone's changing subjects. You know, I was talking about this, but now concerning this other thing, now I'm turning to the second question that you asked me what about my coming? But concerning the day, that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the big message here is that when Jesus comes, you can't calculate when he's going to come. Uh, you know, people are just going to be going about their life. They're going to be eating and drinking and, you know, working and having families and having kids. And they're just going around. And all of a sudden, it's going to surprise them and come upon them. His coming is going to be a surprise. And now, despite the fact that Jesus is very clear here that his coming is a surprise... It has not stopped many Christians throughout history to try to still calculate. I know Jesus says you can't calculate it, but I'm going to still attempt. Actually, I looked on Wikipedia. All the people throughout history have you know, made calculations, you know, 580. That's when Jesus came in. they said, no, it's going to be 1,000. And then January 1st came of, a, you know, I don't know, 1,000 or 1,001 or whatever it was. And they didn't come and they said, you know, you know, it's 1,000 years from when Jesus lived. That was, he died in 33. It's 1,033. So then they waited until 1,033. You know, it was constantly going on. They're always wrong. And they still want to calculate it. And Jesus was very clear. You can't calculate it. But, you know, I should say that there is actually one thing in this passage, a subtle indicator about the timing of the second coming. And that is that though it will come as a surprise it is likely going to be delayed. Jesus' coming is going to be delayed. You see that there, verse 48. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but that wicked servant. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, There's this parable about this master who has left his house in charge of some servants and that his coming is going to be delayed. And actually, in the next chapter we're going to look at, there are two more parables. There's a parable about this wedding feast where the bridegroom is coming and there are these ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And in that parable, it says, as the bridegroom was delayed again, they all became drowsy and slept. And then the next parable is the parable of the talents, where there's a, a master of a house who goes on this journey... And he gives these talents for the, you know, his servants to invest and you know, to multiply his, his, his talents. And in that parable it says, uh, 20, is chapter 25, verse 19, Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. There's a consistent message in these parables that the one thing we know, well, I guess you should say the two things we know about the coming is it's going to be a surprise, but it's also likely going to be delayed. And, of course, that's what we've seen historically. Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years. He says that his kingdom is like a little mustard seed. You know, It starts very small and then it gradually grows in this great tree and all the birds of the air come and sit in it. Or he says his kingdom is like a little bit of leaven that you put in a lump of dough and then the leaven slowly spreads until the whole, the whole, loaf, uh, the whole lump is, is leavened. And that's what's happening is that there is a period of time for his, for his uh, kingdom to expand. And this is what Jesus said was going to happen. So it will be a surprise, but it will also be uh, delayed. And you have to have both of these together. Because if you took his delay as a reason for being lax in your readiness for his appearing, that would also be a mistake, he says. You can't just think about the delay. You have to think about uh, that it's going to come as a surprise. See verse 42. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so what Jesus is expecting here is he says the way that we live our life is we're not kind of waiting to the last minute and then, you know, I'm going to kind of turn over the leaf when he comes. But we should live in light of that it's coming anytime. That means that the second coming should shape the decisions we make about our life. What is my life about? Where is my life directed towards? What am I preparing myself for? What are my priorities? How do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? How do I use my talents? And that's one of the main questions of this passage, is how much does the coming of Jesus shape the priorities of our life? How we want to spend our life. How how much does it shape that? And that this is actually the goal. What are we made for? Where are we going towards? I mean, all of you, you know, you set certain goals out in your future and you say, these are things I'm working for in my career or in family or, you know, in my relationships or whatever. How much is the second coming, that thing that we are having our sights as our target. This is where we're going for. This is the very thing that defines the purpose of my life. And Jesus says that's what it means to be ready, okay? So, first, this passage warns us against one danger, against trying to calculate, right? This, the, the second coming is coming as a surprise. But this passage also warns us against a second common error in American evangelical churches, and that is that also... The second coming is not a rapture. And if, if you're uh, not familiar with rapture theology, you know, rap the, rapture theology has a number of variants, but kind of the predominant one is that uh, Jesus will take up all the Christians on earth into heaven um, before there's kind of a final tribulation in the earth, that, you know, there's all kinds of tragedies and, and things that are going to happen. This world in, in this this period of great turmoil and lawlessness and sin in the earth, and there, you know, if you read those best-selling books left behind, they came out I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago, and they get their name from this verse, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field; one will be taken and one left. Right, one's left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And, of, of course, in the assumption in a rapture theology is you don't want to be left behind. You want to be taken. You don't want to be left behind. Now, I recognize, you know, some of you, uh, um, maybe that's what you've heard about passages like this is about a, a rapture. I, I personally find that there's real problems with reading the New Testament that way. And, in particular, um, I think in this case, there's, there's no question that it's not that you, uh, be the, you don't want to be the one left behind. In this case, you don't want to be the one taken. Because as you read this passage, you say, oh, okay, there's two people at a mill. One's being left and one's being taken. You know, these are Jews who believed in the land. They believed in working the land. And being in the land is where you want to be. And being taken from the land... In the Old Testament was the act of exile. Exile was coming upon you. And foreigners were coming and violently taking you out of the land. You want to be at the mill. You want to be in the garden. You want to be working. And so to be taken is to have an act of violence done to you. And you can see that in this passage in the verse right before that. The other analogy is of the flood. And it says that the flood came and swept them all away. You don't want to be swept away by the flood, and you don't want to be taken from the fields. Actually, this this verb that's used for taken is, is used in a couple chapters uh, to describe Jesus being uh, taken as well during his arrest. It says, the, "Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters." And so you don't you don't want to be taken. You want to be the one left. And you might ask a question, well, where does this come from then about, you know, Christians getting sucked up into heaven and being taken away out of the earth for this, this tribulation? Well, if you're here last week, you know uh, part of the answer to that. But um, most of this comes from another passage of Scripture. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says these words. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. I think for many of us you say, well, you know, it sounds like we're being caught up, into the, uh, caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This sounds like Christians being sucked up into heaven and you combine that verse with this one, and maybe that's what this, one, this verse is talking about. But one of the things that's so important about reading First Thessalonians is you have to ask the question, what is the movement of the passage? Is the movement of the passage Christians going to heaven? No, it says when the Lord descends is the language. It's Jesus, the true king. Is not, it's not us going to heaven. It's Jesus coming from heaven, coming to earth. It's his coming. That's why we call it his second coming. And the language actually, meeting the Lord, this, uh, this was language that was used in, um, in the ancient world in the Roman Empire. When, you know, like an emperor, the Roman emperor would come to a colony. You know, the emperor would live in Rome, and that's kind of the center of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire would have these colonies. And if a colony had a visitation from the emperor, they would know, oh, the king is coming to visit us. And so what they would do is they would go out into the highways to meet the Lord, to meet the king. And they would start a procession to come with him back into the city. And so what we're doing, when we go to meet the Lord, it means that we're waiting for the Lord to descend. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom here. And we're awaiting him. We're going out to meet him. Now, I'm not exactly sure what it means to meet him in the air. But what's for certain is that the direction is about Jesus coming here, not about us going there. Now, you might ask, you know, is this, is this important? You know, quirky, raptured, second coming theology. You know, is this, are Christians wasting their time kind of thinking about these kind of end times questions? And I'll tell you, I think this has a huge implication for how you live out your Christian life. Because I want you to imagine these two versions of history. If one version of history says, you know, the world is getting worse and worse and worse actually there's a final tribulation coming where there's going to be all kinds of sin and there's going to be terror and, uh, and the Christians who hold on and there's just going to be a few of them, there's going to be fewer and fewer of them. If they can just hold on, then God will finally evacuate them out of this creation that is being scrapped and being destroyed and finally he'll take them somewhere else where they get to be, have peace with the Lord. How are you going to live your life? Fear, insular, protective, you're not going to be go out into the world. You're going to be holding on. You're, not going, to be, you're going to be distrustful of, of everyone. And that's, that's how Christians often live in the world. But if you believe that actually the history is that God's kingdom is coming here. He's establishing his kingdom and Jesus is coming here. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, it means the nations are going to be discipled. And actually there's promises of the Old Testament of you know, the nations flocking to Zion to worship the God of the Jews. And, um, and that he's pouring out his spirit, and he's, and he's calling the nations to himself. And, he, and he's sending us out as agents of his kingdom, and he's building his church in every nation. And you have this optimistic view, and he's bringing his kingdom here that will ultimately consummate it when he comes. What is that going to cause us to do? He's going to it's gonna send us out into the world um, to serve him with courage, with hope, with boldness, with optimism. And, you know, I, it's actually interesting, I was talking to uh, uh, Joanne Tippery after the f- uh, first service, and she was saying, she says, you know, I've, I've met people, maybe this is you, I'm, I, but she was saying, I've met people that are waiting the rapture. And they say, you know, the world's going to be destroyed. Don't send your kids to college. Why go to college? This world's going to scrap. Our hope's somewhere else. You know, why, why build a home? Why build a city or, or, or build a business? Why, you know, have any kind of cultural engagement? Why, you know, why invest in learning and invest in the future? This place is going to be trashed by God, and we're going to go somewhere else. But if you believe that God is renewing this world, your engagement in the culture and thinking and building and all these things is going to be vast. And that's how Christians have been throughout history. And I'll tell you, American evangelicals have lost that in the last century. And a lot of the reason, because we have lost our cultural power, is because of doctrines like this. So this is a major question. And what kind of community are we going to be? These are two radically different kinds of communities. So, a couple insights first. First of all, the, the, the this second coming is a surprise. can't be calculated. The second thing is that it's not going to be a rapture. God is bringing his kingdom here. That's the whole message of the Bible. This is a good creation that God made, and he's going to renew it. But in order for this creation to be renewed, it needs to be cleansed of the evil in it. There is very real evil in the world. And so God has to free the world from the evil in it, and he does that through judgment. It's a very big part of the Bible. And, of course, the second coming is for Jesus. Jesus is coming for judgment. That's a big part of this discourse that he's giving. You know, when he says, but concerning that day, the word the day is uh, the day of judgment. And this is, let me just, uh, let me read to you again what Jesus says. This is uh, in chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus says these words, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. There is an accounting, a final accounting for our lives that we must uh, stand before God, and it's described very graphically in this passage that we just read. Look again at verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself... My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a particularly gruesome parable. It describes this master of a house who comes back and he finds out that one of his servants is acting like a tyrant and he's beating and abusing all the other servants he's drunk and abusing them and uh, the master is going to execute this servant for his mistreatment of his fellow servants and you know in the next few, in a few weeks we're going to have another sermon on the final judgment. Jesus has a really powerful uh, uh, teaching on it, on the, the the sheep and the goats. Some of you will know that, and there's a, some really important insights in there. But um, Jesus is making clear here that final judgment is a very serious matter, very serious. And you might think that a belief in any passage like this is very primitive. You know, this God who's a judge and he gets angry and he's threatening, and uh, and yet. One of the things to realize is that the whole thought of final judgment is very consistent with our intuitions as humans. I think we intuitively know that a a judgment is is coming because this intuition tells us, we all intuitively know that there's a moral order to the universe. You know that you're supposed to treat other people decently. You're supposed to love them. You're not supposed to abuse them and beat them up like this guy was doing to his fellow servants. You're supposed to be kind to them. You're supposed to be generous. You're supposed to treat people with dignity. And if the moral order of the universe is one of love, that tells us there's probably a loving being, a personal being behind the universe that has given us that moral order. That makes perfect sense. But we live in a society that has, for the past couple centuries, worked diligently to resist this intuition. And so we th- say things like, "You know, the reason that you feel morals moral obligations, it's not that because there's a universal moral order, there's a personal God or anything, it's just a social construct. You know, your society says you're supposed to treat people this way, you know, your family that you grew up in, you learn these morals from them, and of course you think that everyone should believe them, but actually go to the different cultures, and cultures have different sets of morals, and they handle things differently, they do their manners differently, and you're just representing your kind of uh, local cultural expression of that, but go to a different culture, and it'll be different. And of course, that's some extent, true, right? Cultures are different. We have different morals. And we certainly learn about our morals from our extended family and our culture. But there's a major problem with that. If we say that morals are only from our culture, how are we going to critique our culture? We need something from outside of our culture to challenge our culture. And actually, that's usually one of the most important things that morals do is challenge cultures, is is to resist the way of the world. And so we need something from outside of our culture. It simply does not work, and we don't treat morals that way. We, we intuitively know that. Or, someone might say, you know, okay, partially your morals are shaped by, you know, society, but actually, some people might say, you know, it's actually a, your morals are a biological instinct that you've learned that we've adapted through evolution. You know, that as humans, we've kind of found out that... To, be, to cooperate with one another, our species is going to survive better. And so we've, we've uh, evolved the kind of love instinct, because, you know, if we have a love instinct, we're going to survive better and our species is going to do better. And so, you know, that's really where morals come from. It's just something that's been evolved in our species. Now The problem with that is, you know, I've evolved some other uh, instincts as well. You know, not just the love instinct, but I'm also greedy, competitive, lustful. And so for some reason, I'm supposed to affirm the cooperative instinct, but I'm supposed to resist these other instincts. But if you say I should just follow an instinct because I evolved that way and it leads to our survival, I have all kinds of instincts happening inside of me. I need something that's outside of my instincts, outside of my body, to tell me which instincts I should follow and which ones I should resist. What is that thing that's outside of me? It's a personal God that is an incredibly rational thing to believe that there is a God who gives us this moral order. He is himself loving. And that's why he expects that from us. And, you know, if that's true, um, then it's also perfectly rational that there's going to be an accounting for that moral order. If there's a personal God who expects me to love other people, I should, it should make sense that at some point I'm going to have to stand before that God and answer the question, did I love other people? And what all Jesus is saying here is, yes, that's going to happen. And we should be prepared for that accounting. Now, of course, the problem is, uh, all of us have, in varying degrees, ignored the ways of God, failed to love the people nearest. I mean, for many of us, the people that we mistreat the most are people in our homes and the people that are near to us. And those are the people that we say, the, you know, the words that we're most ashamed of are the people that are closest to us. We can't even love our own family. You know, how can we say that we love humanity or our neighbors or anything like that? And so um, we always are falling short of the will of God. And so does that mean that we should live in fear of that final judgment? Cowering. That God is coming... And this violent, gruesome parable is going to come upon me, and that, that's what God's going to do to me. Well, what's remarkable about this gruesome judgment, again there in verse 51, and he will cut him in pieces and will put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the coming chapters of Matthew, Jesus who speaks these words will himself be cut in pieces. You know, the words for cutting a piece is the word for sacrifice. Jesus himself is going to have that violent, gruesome judgment come upon him. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. He's going to hang on a cross by common criminals. You know, he's going to be thrown with the hypocrites. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth in Jesus. And he's going to do that in our place. And so how do we face a second coming? We will either stand on the merits of our own works or we will stand before God on the merits of Jesus' work. And so when we are judged, if you are in Christ, God will name all of your sins that you've done throughout your life, and they will all be judged, forgiven. And you will be weeping with gratitude and humility that this huge mass of sin that you can't even bear to look at has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And so that means that if you are in Christ Jesus, Judgment Day has already passed. It's over. And so when we look forward to Jesus' coming, it's the coming of his kingdom. It's the coming of his celebration, the wedding feast of the lamb, the consummation of all things. And finally, we will be cleansed of the evil that's in us. And we will live in God's presence. And so the day of his coming is a day of joy. And so, um, are we anticipating that? Is that a part of your identity, the coming judgment? Is that something you've thought through? That it's coming as a surprise, that we would be ready. But also that it's not so that God will evacuate us out of this creation. He's coming to renew all things, including us. And if you are in Jesus, you'll pass that judgment. And uh, we will be with Him forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We thank you that you speak truthfully to us in your word. Pray that you give us ears to hear what you have to say. And would we be agents of your kingdom in the world, filled with your spirit and filled with the hope and desire and longing of the coming of your kingdom. And uh, we thank you that Jesus has gone to the cross to bear the brutal punishment in our place. Humble us, fill us with gratitude as we think on that gift of salvation. Would it fill us with love for you, love for each other, love for our neighbors? We pray in Christ's name.